Would anybody like to hear last week's sermon? <laughs> it might be better than this week's. <laughs> you never know. People don't like uncertainty, even with what the next sermon is going to be. I mean, we just like classics. Just play that same one over and over and over again. You just know what it's going to say and when it's going to end. And coming to church, you're like, is he going to end on time today? It's 1040. Uncertainty. People don't like it. You know, we don't like uncertainty so much that there's even a group of psychologists that have tried to prove this, right? They have tried to prove that we would often rather have something bad happen to us now. Just tell me now. Do it to me now. Then the weight and the dread that something might happen bad in the future. So these psychologists in 1966 published an article in Experimental Psychology. These three psychologists uh, got a group of humans to conduct this experiment on. And this is what they did. They uh, attached you to a machine, and that kept track of your vital signs. But the machine also could send an electric shock. Now, what they would tell you is this. Uh, one in four people would get the shock. And uh, you knew about that when you signed up, okay? And uh, you would get the shock without warning. It would just happen to you randomly. And so then you were given this choice. If you wanted, you could receive the shock immediately. Or you could take your chances and see if you were that unlucky one. And what they found out was the vast majority of people did what? They wanted to take the shock immediately. Just go ahead and give it to me now. Well, they conducted the experiment again with a slightly different alteration. It was still a one in four chance of you getting shocked. But this time, the machine would give you a five-second warning. They would sound an alarm. The shock is coming. Okay? That would notify you. Okay? Now, you were still given the choice. Would you want to be shocked immediately? Or would you like to risk it, get the warning five seconds ahead of time, and then receive it if you were the unlucky one? And at this point, very few people chose to be shocked immediately. Instead, they endured, and they were willing to risk it because they knew that they were at least going to be prepared for five seconds, counting Mississippi, okay, right, <laughs> before you got that shock. And so they prove that all of us, or most of us, would like to be shocked than to have something come and hit us out of the blue, and that we are more concerned, more anxious about the anxiety around the uncertainty of the future than we are about just give me the pain now. Well, in our text this morning, we see that disciples are dealing with quite a bit of uncertainty. I think we can sympathize with them uh, of their anxiety and their confusion. There is no doubt that they are troubled. Look at John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. There's no doubt that they are confused. Flip the page. John 16, uh, 17 through 18. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? I can just stop there, but we'll go on. A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. There is anxiety. There is confusion. They have reasons for their heart to be troubled. At the outset here, if you are thinking that this sermon is going to 
only make you more anxious because you are anxious. There is a right time for Christians to be troubled in spirit. That in and of itself is not a problem. Christ was troubled in spirit, and yet he did not sin. So there is a way to still be troubled in spirit and to still believe, to still trust, and not sin. So there are reasons for these disciples to be troubled, but there are even greater reasons for their hearts not to be troubled. Doesn't Christ think about our emotions differently than we do? Here we are troubled, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. We think that we are just kind of passive to our emotions. We can't help but who we fall in love with. We can't help but feel this way. Christ seems to have a different understanding about your emotions than the modern man does. Let not your hearts be troubled. There are greater reasons for your hearts not to be troubled. In other words, you can be a realist about your troubles this morning, right? I'm not a pessimist, Josh. I'm a realist. Great. Identify those troubles, but also be a realist about the power and the goodness of God. Don't let your hearts be stirred up, but exercise trust in God's truth. If you exercise trust in God's truth this morning, you will have comfort, confidence, and clarity to your calling. These truths are the antidotes to a troubled life. But in order to have that comfort and to have the confidence that we need for our calling while we are waiting for His return, Christ has to do some of the more hard work, which we would call sight work. We have some things that have to be cleared out, some things that have to, the debris that has to be moved, the brush that has to be taken away, maybe even bedrock that needs to be exploded for the good truths of his seed to fall into our hearts with fertile ground that would actually bring forth fruit. So Jesus first has to remove false assurances. Those that are note takers, here it is, step one, Jesus has to remove false assurances before he can, number two, instill deep comfort and confidence in your calling while you wait for his return. Step two, instill deep comfort. First, to instill deep comfort, Jesus has to remove the false assurances of our life. So Jesus undermines our false assurances. It is in his love that he does that. Remember John 13, 1 begins with, he loved them to the end. And so this is still a part of his love that he is determined to block off all the wrong paths that you want to go down for your comfort or for your confidence or for your clarity and calling. He doesn't want you to go down a wrong road. And so the main path that he's going to block off this morning, the huge piece of granite that he has to remove from your life so you don't build your life on this, is your self-confidence. Right? Despite what the world tells you, self-confidence is the road to disaster. Despite what the world tells you, Self-confidence is the road to disaster. Your confidence needs to be somewhere else entirely. And Peter needed to learn this. So here we are in John 13, verses 31 through 35. Jesus begins instructing his disciples. Judas has left. It is night. And Jesus now is going to go on a long teaching time, the upper room discourse, just to his disciples. He knows that he's going to be glorifying the Father with the plan that he set in motion. We see that in John 13, uh, 31. He turns to his disciples for the first time, and he says to them in verse 33, my little children. First time he calls them that, a tender tone for the devastating news at the end of 33. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, 
And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The disciples' lives have been completely revolving around Jesus for three years. He is their Messiah. Uh, he is all of their hope and all of their life. They are in Jerusalem during Passover. He has ridden in on a donkey. I mean, big things are going to happen. This is the moment we've been waiting for. They can feel the pressure building. And then Jesus suddenly says, he's going away, and they can't come with him. And like little children, they hear nothing else except for that he's going away. They hear nothing about Jesus calling them and his calling on their life and our life. Look at John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. They don't have a single question about how to love one another as Jesus just did to Judas. Not one. All they hear is that one phrase that I am going away. And that's all they want to drill down on is why are you leaving? And Peter is the first to ask a question. For those that have been learning how to study the Bible, this passage is organized by question and answer. It is great that we do question and answers through the service because this passage is organized in the exact same way. We have three questions. We have three answers. Peter's the first one to ask a question, then Thomas, then Philip. Pat's going to cover Thomas and Philip next week, Lord willing, and maybe even a little bit of this first one, okay? Uh, you'll probably get it all wrapped up into one in a nice bow tie. Um, but here we have Peter. He's the first to ask his question. It's in verse 36. Lord, where are you going? For us, on this side of the cross, we would ask a similar question when we have a troubled heart. Lord, where have you gone? Same thing. His absence makes you feel like you were just flailing around in the dark. And to remove any false assurance that you would have in yourself, Jesus answers this way. I'm going to go to a place that you cannot go. It's a place where you have not been, but you will get there at some point. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Well, Peter, Peter cannot fathom this. He has walked with Jesus. He has kept in stride at each step of the way. And so Peter asks his second question in verse 37. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. When Peter looks at his own heart, he is certain, right? I mean, notice how sure Peter is of his own strength. He says, I will lay down my life for you. It is almost the exact same words that Jesus uses in John 10, 15, when he spoke of himself. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And now you see the irony. Here is Peter saying, I will lay down my life for you. John, the word for means on behalf of, substitutionary death here. And first, we see that Peter thinks he's going to lay down his life for Jesus. We see that Peter has failed to grasp the unique achievement of the cross that Jesus will accomplish. He's failed to grasp the unique achievement of the cross 
because Peter has not reckoned appropriately, an accounting word, his own moral and spiritual bankruptcy. Right? Peter thinks he's able and qualified to stand with Jesus and for Jesus. His intentions are great. His love is great. But Jesus knows Peter's heart far better than Peter knows his own. Look at how that point is driven home in verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. When Peter... Well, I'm sorry, when Jesus diagnoses Peter's heart, he says, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Jesus tells Peter he's going to do something. You will not be able to follow me of where I am going. But Peter's estimation of his own strength cuts him off from the help that Jesus is willing to offer. Will you lay down your life for me? It's a neon sign. It's a warning but Peter is only hearing, I got this covered. I don't need you to wash my feet. We know later he's going to take a sword and try to prevent Jesus from dying and cut off a soldier's ear. How little he calculated the truths of his own weakness when he faced a real challenge. You know, here his intentions are good. After some food that Christ prepared and feet that he washed in a nice safe room. But... It is not as resolute when he's out there in a garden surrounded by a hostile mob. Jesus has to remove the debris of this false confidence in order for him to have some deep, deep confidence of Christ. So here's our second point, instill deep confidence. It's an application for a non-Christian this morning and one for Christians so that you can be confident in God's calling in your life. Jesus gives us some truths now that we've removed the self-confidence, he gives us some truths to kind of put in there as, as pegs to kind of assure uh, and stabilize these pillars in our lives. And so both to the non-Christian who is exploring and to the one that is following Christ who's waiting for his return, listen to how Christ gives you confidence uh, with his truths. First, to those that are non-Christians, those that are exploring Christianity, I especially want to talk to you if you have any kind of religious background. You know, it's not unlikely for you to grow up here in New England, to maybe have attended at least for a moment a Catholic church. And here we find Peter, the rock on which the church is built, some interpret. He is the most ardent and faithful follower of Jesus, and yet he is going to fail. Here is the point for you, my non-Christian friend. There is not a man, there is not a woman, no matter how committed they are, they are able to reach heaven by their own efforts. Heaven is denied to all who think that they can get in there on what they have done and their self-confidence in their performance. The stairway to heaven is blocked. I cannot bat my eyes to get in. I cannot barter my way to get in. I cannot bluff my way in. I cannot buy my way in. Before Peter could do anything for Jesus, Jesus alone has a specific task that he has to fulfill. He has to die for Peter. Even Peter is not good enough to serve God until Jesus first serves him. That's the gospel. That's the point. So here, if you're not a Christian... 
You will not have this assurance, this comfort of a way prepared for you to heaven if you're looking at your own efforts. Because as long as you think there is something innately good in you, you will never move your confidence off yourself and onto Jesus. If you think, I'm still a pretty good person, you're still looking at you. And that's why every week we want to just lift Christ up and preach the cross because that's where our confidence is for our comfort and for our calling to stay sure and faithful to Him until He returns. My non-Christian friend, if you want to know that you are secured, to have comfort of an eternal home, have confidence that the way has been prepared, don't look at your own records of your deeds, look at the cross. Access to heaven comes through the trail that Jesus blazed for you. That's why John 14 follows right off of John 13. There are no chapter divisions in the original. In the original Greek, it was all written in capital letters. And so people later put verses there to help us find it. Some people think that these verses were put there uh, just like the roads in Boston were designed. Okay, <laughs> But here, I don't know if there needs to be a chapter division because for you that are wondering, do I have security? How do I get into heaven? This is for you, my non-Christian friend. Let not your hearts be troubled by the inadequacy of your moral performance. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place. Don't think home makeover. Don't think a do-it-yourself renovation project. He is not up there right now working so hard until you, the guests, come. You know the whirlwind when you have people coming over that everybody is, you know, cleaning up stuff, fluffing the pillows, hiding stuff in the closet. That's not what he's doing. This is a past tense completed action. The word prepared. He has already prepared it by going to the cross. It is finished. It is done. He has prepared that way. And you can have that confidence to also know that if he goes and has prepared that place for you, he will come again and take you to himself, that where he is, you can be also. So then you and I can do nothing to earn anything, right? to give anything, to contribute anything, to do anything for God. You come to Jesus with the confidence that he has prepared his way for you through his loving, substitutionary, sacrificial death. Second, uh, well, for our faith family, the application here of how to have confidence is in uh, the same idea that Peter, who is the rock, has failed, will fail, is not as strong as he thinks he is. And I think this can bring us some confidence as we wait and as we work for him. Let it be a settled principle for us this morning that there is an amount of weakness in our own hearts that I don't think we quite can fathom. We are more weak than we think we are. We believe, like Peter, there are some things that we would just never do. At times, we prop ourselves up and we preach to ourselves that those sins are ones that I would never do. How could somebody ever fill in the blank? We know nothing at all. It's just, yeah, 
Faith family, to avoid falling into devastating sin, realize that you are capable of doing the exact same thing. Pride comes before the fall, right? It takes Peter so long to learn this lesson, so I just want to dwell on it for a couple more minutes, then we'll, then we'll be dismissed. I want to remind us that we are all capable of abject spiritual failure. The wickedness that is in our heart in seed form, right? It might not be a big old oak tree, but it's there in seed form, and all it needs is the right occasion, to produce a harvest of weeds, or tares, and sin. So just think over the past couple of months in your own life. At home with your family, you've been given an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ. There's the opportunity. The occasion passes, you've done nothing, and like Peter, you say, I never knew the man. You're at university. Opportunity arises to stand up, and to witness for Jesus. Opportunity's there. Opportunity passes. You've said nothing. And like Peter, I never knew the man. At work, an opportunity arises to stand with Jesus. Opportunity passes. Aren't you a, f- a follower of Jesus? You go to a faith community Bible church, I heard. I am not. I can look at my own spiritual life. Don't worry, this will not be a tabloid confession here. You guys know me well enough to know where I'm weak. I'm no different than Peter. Right? I can disassociate with Jesus. I can deny him. I can stay silent. Just like Peter, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's a servant girl or a guy warming us up with the fire or the soldier that he cut off the ear of. You know what? I just can convince that each year we find that we are capable of deeper sins than we ever thought of. So come to terms with your weakness. You can receive the truth of God's comfort for you to give you confidence in your calling. There's one little word that I think will give you comfort and confidence this morning as you wait for his return. It is the word afterwards. Afterwards, in verse 36, Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Afterward. Peter doesn't realize it right now, but if Peter has a memory, that word afterward is going to mean everything to Peter. Because Peter says, you're going to want to follow me, but you're going to fall along the way. There's going to be some things that you're not proud of. There's going to be some stuff that you're going to do that you're not going to follow me. You're not going to stick by me. But afterward, you will come back to me. Faith family, he does not give that word to Judas, but he does give that word to Peter. Peter is a temporary denial. Judas is the ultimate betrayal. And it is a word that you're going to want to remember if you can identify with Peter afterward. The plan is for Peter to be a leader in the church. Pat already prayed that. I, again, just praise the Lord for how God works in the midst of things. But you know what? Think about how bad it would be if Peter was given the leadership of the church when he was this self-confident. You know, he's not ready yet. But after he has failed... After he's been restored, he sees how low he can go and how, what he's capable of doing. And it's at that point that Peter is ready to serve. Jesus had to help Peter get ready. And that meant coming to grips with his own weakness 
and not trusting in the confidence of his own flesh, his own failure to not trust in his self-confidence. So Christians, it may be very well that God is wanting to do a great work in and through you, but it could be that your preparation is a guided tour through your weaknesses first. Could it be that God's plan to use you begins with showing you your dependence on him? Not how much he needs you, not how great you are, but just how much you need him so that afterward you will follow him. It may be a word that you need to remember this morning, thinking back over the month of the things you've done, places you've been, how you've disowned Christ, and perhaps he's whispering to you this morning, afterward you will follow me, afterward. And that should instill deep confidence as you wait for his return. Has your failures troubled your heart? Jesus answers Peter, Let not your hearts be troubled by your sinful failure. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Do you understand the logic of your comfort and your confidence? Christian, it is because a prepared place has been done for you. Christ accomplished the most difficult thing, a unique achievement on the cross that no one else can do. And because that has already been done in the past, you now can be certain of his coming to take us to be with him. Right? His past work gives you confidence on his future word. I will come back for you. His unique achievement in the past gives us a unique assurance for the future, truths for troubled hearts. We do have reasons to be troubled. Every one of us lives in ongoing sin. We are only too aware of specific occasions in our life where we have failed like Peter. If you're someone who is exploring Christianity and you think, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. No, we know that we fail. We know that we are capable of sinning just like the best of them. We know that. We are not hypocrites. We are inconsistent. But because of his unique achievement, he can give us a unique assurance to comfort our hearts, give us confidence in our calling while we wait for his return. We'll have a moment of silence, and then we'll sing it as well.